0: What's up everybody, welcome to another episode of Mythic Existence, I'm your host Jack Daly. Today we're going to be exploring the Tao of Physics, a book written by the physicist Fritjof Capra that examines the similarities between physics and Eastern mysticism. We'll hope to see how both science and spirituality point to an inseparable interconnection of nature. So sit back, relax, and enjoy another episode of Mythic Existence. So the similarities between physics and Eastern spirituality is a topic that I've studied for a while now, and it was actually something that I wrote about in a freshman English class that I had in college. Um, So I don't want to brag, but I actually came to the same conclusion as this book before uh, I even read it, but of course it goes into far more detail than I do. Uh, in the you know six page paper that I wrote as a freshman in college, but basically what I did was I compared ideas in quantum mechanics to ideas in Eastern mysticism, and I found that they both talked about the the non separability of matter and the interconnectedness of nature, and basically the ideas are that everything is connected, and that there's really no difference between, you know, yourself and a wave or a particle, or there's no difference between yourself and, uh, you know, a leaf of a cherry tree, basically. So, that's the main point of the Tao of Physics, is that, basically, the concepts of modern physics have parallels to Eastern philosophy. In particular, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Taoism. Now, in our current modern Western culture, we are kind of dominated by Cartesian dualism, that was kind of developed, you know, by by Rene Descartes, and it it posits that there's a realm of the mind, the uh, res cogitans, and the world of matter, which is the res extensa. And so we, ha- we have this inherent dualism in our worldview that separates us from our outside reality. And you can see that in the way that we interact with the world. That's one of the main reasons why we have so many environmental issues is we don't think we're part of nature. We, we think we're outside the, the realm of nature that humans are somehow special and you know the things that we do aren't going to come back to us and one thing that i wrote about in our paper is i wrote about in the paper that i wrote when i was in college was you know rachel carson's book the silent spring shows how there's unintended consequences of our actions and we used chlorofluorocarbons uh in you know, in our in our spray bottles that ended up starting to tear a hole in the ozone. And so what we realized is what we do to the world we're actually doing to ourselves. And it's because we're connected to the world. And we have this very strong, you know, egocentric I based culture and we don't stop to think about how we actually are, you know, the mountains. We are the ozone, and so we, when we when we do things that are anathema to nature, it's it comes back to ourselves. But the idea of you know a real deep connection to nature is something that has been present in Western culture. Heraclitus uh, believed in a world of perpetual change that was embodied by the universal principle of fire, and he taught that everything is a dynamic and cyclic interplay of opposites, and he held that any pair of opposites were actually a unity, and that's what we see in yin and yang, and that's a very prevalent idea in Eastern philosophy and in the world of quantum physics specifically through you know waves of part waves and particles is that things that are perceived as being opposites aren't actually opposites they're they're bound by a single unity and eastern mysticism says that all things are interrelated and connected and that they are all aspects of the same ultimate reality there's a quote from the Upanishads, which is one of my favorite uh, Eastern texts. It's one of the the, the three main, uh, you know, sacred texts of Hinduism. It says, when the mind is disturbed, the multiplicity of things is produced. But the, when the mind is quieted, the multiplicity of things disappears. So that's really the goal of Eastern mysticism is transcending the multiplicity and getting past the perceived world of opposites and getting into that primal oneness that we really have. One thing that both modern physics and Eastern mysticism deal with is the inherent problems with our language. Our language is not able to fully explain how reality is operating, because there's all sorts of, you know, uh, things, the way that we perceive the world is reflected in our language. Um, There's a specific term for that, I'm not, I can't remember what it is right now, but basically, you know, your worldview is present in how your your language is built, but it's not really grasping how the world and the universe actually operates and so we're searching for that real that realness there's another quote from the Upanishads it's one of my favorites it says from the unreal lead me to the real from darkness lead me to the light from death lead me to immortality so that's what we're trying to get to is that that experience of how the universe actually operates. Um, And so this is, the term that we use for it is ineffable. Uh, We really can't understand uh, that ultimate thing, but we can have some sort of experience of it. There's another quote. Um, I forgot to attribute this one, but it says, What is soundless, touchless, imperishable, likewise tasteless, constant, Odorless, without without beginning, without end, higher than the great stable. By discerning that, one is liberated from death. And so that's the idea in in Buddhism is it's called samsara, is this realm of opposites of, of life and death. The the endless wheel is samsara. But once you come to that mystic understanding of oneness, you are said to be liberated from the cycle of rebirth and reincarnation and consumed into basically the, the world of the gods in a certain sense. Now, the physicists have also been dealing with these ideas uh, and this, this, this lack, but this uh, drive to get into the undivided suchness is the term that the Tao Physics use. Uh, Heisenberg said that every word or concept, clear as it may be, has only a limited range of applicability. And that's really the central characteristic of the mystic experience, of you know, the, not being able to fully uh, you know, articulate your mystic experience to others. And Lao Tzu called this the Tao. And he said that the Tao that can be expressed is not the eternal Tao. And I really love Taoism because it really embraces uh, that ineffability. Chuang Su, who uh, was a Taoist, said that if it could be talked about, everybody would have told their brother. And that's an experience that I, I think that I've had is that, you know, I've had some very mystical experiences in my life. And uh, when I tried to articulate them and tell them to people, people looked at me like I was crazy. And that's when I kind of stopped just trying to talk to everybody about it because I realized people don't get it, especially in the West. People don't get it. Um, And, you know, Heisenberg, Heraclitus, they weren't the only people that were dealing with this. Another, uh, you know, one of the most prevalent Western philosophers uh Ludwig Wittgenstein came to the realization that our language was inherently you know uh lacking in the ability to express reality uh there's a great movie the Oxford murders that talks about how he came to this realization actually in the middle of the uh the battlegrounds of World War 1 and uh he started writing his book, The Logico Philosophicus Tractatus, um, which is kind of his groundbreaking work of, of philosophy that expressed these ideas that were very similar to Eastern mysticism and what is being found in quantum mechanics. So, what I really love about Eastern mysticism is that as opposed to you know Western spirituality, we're trying to get to in Eastern mysticism a divine state, uh, being being one with the, the gods, as opposed to the thought in Western philosophy, which is uh, you know Jesus. All you have to do is just accept Jesus, and then you're saved. As if that makes any sense. But Buddhism holds that our uh, original nature is that of the enlightened buddha and that we have just forgotten it and students of zen buddhism are asked to remember their original face which is a great term that i love a lot of your original face is that of the enlightened buddha and that's the the whole goal of your life is to get back, back to that hinduism has a lot of you know great texts that try to get this point across as well, uh, but they, they clothe their insights in uh, mythic metaphors. One of them is the Bhagavad Gita, where uh, Arjuna is dealing with this deep internal conflict about how he's supposed to interact with the world or not, um, and basically Krishna just urges him to remember who he is, which is that divine being. Um, and similarly, uh, you know, physicists are trying to find that r- ultimate reality so that they can come across some a- approx- uh, approximation of the truth that they're trying to express. One thing that they do in Zen to kind of express this truth is the use of cones, which are basically nonsensical riddles that are used to transmit these teachings. My favorite one is, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And the answer is, the sound that is not made by two objects striking together. And that sound is the sound of the universe. It's OM. It's the sound that's not made by two objects striking together. I read a really interesting article that, uh, I guess it was um, more of more of like a journal uh, academic piece uh, about Hamlet and Zen. And it, it said that basically Hamlet was on um, a path of the, a Zen mystic and that his cone was to remember his father. And it said that everybody has their cone uh, and it's something that you don't forget. And that's my cone is what is the sound of one hand clapping because it makes me think about... Uh, how there is uh, an inherent mystical nature to all of reality. Now, one of the most important ways that this kind of mystic insight came to the physicist was through the revelation that uh, electromagnetic radiation could uh, exist both as a wave and as a particle, but not at the same time. And that the user's, uh, you know, the physicist's observation actually changed the outcome of these experiments. And the experiment that they were really doing was called the double-split experiment. I don't want to get too bogged down into the details of exactly how this worked, but basically what they realized when they were passing uh electrons through, uh, basically they're pa- they passing electrons through a uh, wall with two slits in it that had another wall behind it, and every time that they were trying to observe how the waves or the particles were passing through, they would realize that when they were trying to see waves, they would get particles. And when they were trying to get particles, they would get waves. And the revelation was, the physicists were the waves and the particles. The observer was the observed. There's no, I'm a physicist, you're a particle. I'm a physicist, you're something else. It's all, whoa, wait, hold on. So these Electrons that I think that are actually outside of me are actually myself because I'm one with the universe, which is the deepest like mystical revelation that you could possibly have. And that is also like this that led to other experiments with things like quantum entanglement, uh, which showed that, you know, particles are deeply interconnected with each other there's one experiment that they would split a i think it was a photon into two pieces or maybe they had two photons but they would send it down a tunnel in opposite directions and the photon would have to choose to go left or right and they were so far away that they couldn't be communicating with um you know light Like the the distance that they were apart was beyond like how far light could travel at that speed to each other. But the photons would always make the same decision of which way that they were traveling. And so the realization was that the photons were connected to each other, that the universe is connected. And so at the deepest level, at the smallest, the quantum level, up to the highest level but at the most inherent level of reality the universe is deeply interconnected and i think that that's uh an extremely mystical revelation and so you know these physicists they were they were realizing this and their realizations were kind of similar to what mystics have said uh this experience of reality shakes the foundations of one's worldview. And I can say that for myself, Uh, you know, when I was having sort of my original mystical revelations about, you know, the oneness of reality and how I wasn't the the person that I thought I was in the sense that, uh, you know, the, that, that I think that I am isn't the that that I am and the that that I really am is something that I can't even conceive of Uh, the Zen Buddhist DT Suzuki said that this is the most startling event that could ever happen in the realm of human consciousness and the physicists felt the same way when they uncovered the atomic reality Heisenberg had a very uh, similar reaction and when the physicists and the mathematicians were uh you know coming to these real realizations they were faced with a, a conception of god that that wasn't holding up to what their findings were um pierre laplace when he was showing his work uh to napoleon said that his findings needed no hypothesis uh or that his findings had no need for a hypothesis when Napoleon remarked that the creator was not present. And so it's basically, you know, hey, this is how the universe actually operates. It's deeply mystical, but we don't need some kind of outside creator to explain how this really works. Um, going back a little bit to the discussion of the waves and particles, uh, you know they they discovered that subatomic units of matter have a dual aspect. and uh, Max Planck discovered that uh, radiation was not emitted continuously. I'm quoting directly from the book right now. It says radiation was not emitted continuously, but rather in packets. It was shown that subatomic particles have no meaning as isolated entities but can only be understood by interconnections between the preparation of an experiment and the subsequent experiment itself. Uh, So that's kind of what I was talking about, is that the the experience of an inseparable whole is at the very root of modern physics. And uh, we we have this thing called Bell's theorem that uh, comes from Physics and it posits that the universe is at its core non local, um, and that's something that's intrinsic to, I think, deep mystic experiences as experiences of being a non local being um, and being everywhere at once, which is really how you know our universe operates. want to go into a little bit of a a deeper discussion of the eastern religions themselves because that's how the book operates and so it it gives kind of a a cursory overview of each of the main eastern religions Uh, and so let's start with hinduism because hinduism is is one of the oldest religions in the east uh it's unclear exactly how it originated, because it is quite old. Um, Some of the scholarship says that Hinduism derived from um, Aryan nomads coming from the West, coming down into India. India is the place that it originated from. Uh, I'm reading a book about uh, Kabbalah. It's called Practical Kabbalah. And it says that in the, the Kabbalistic tradition, actually the descendants of Abraham were the ones that brought the deep mystical truths over into the east, which I think is an interesting idea, and I I don't know if it's true or not. People have pointed out the fact that Brahma, which is the ultimate reality, uh, one of the, the, the most important gods in Hinduism is in a way, an anagram of, of Abraham and that the words might be connected, um, to each other. Uh, one of the, the main takeaways from Hinduism is Tatvam Asi, which is that art thou, um, the whole quote from one of, you know, the Hindu texts is that, which is the finest essence, this whole world that has that as its soul, that is reality that is Atman, that art thou. So the manifestation of Brahma in the human is Atman, uh, this term. and uh, Brahman, Atman, and Jagat are three really important terms that when I was studying Hinduism in college really changed my life. Uh, Brahma is this ultimate reality. Atman is the ultimate reality, how it lives in you. And Jagat is basically uh, how this ultimate reality operates on the earth. And so uh, it points to kind of the divine nature inherent in being um, a human being. In Hinduism, they have uh, a term called Lila, which is the play of God. And it's seen that the world is a stage of the divine play it kind of reminds me of you know shakespeare's quote uh you know all the world's a stage the i forget exactly what it is but the men and women are are it's players so that's a very hindu quote actually um but if we don't ex- in hinduism if we don't acknowledge the existence of brahman and brahma under the uh, you know in lila We are under the spell of Maya, and Maya is this illusion that can be cast a magic spell that makes us think that we aren't divine, which I think is also another very interesting idea. Moving on to Buddhism, you know, Buddhism isn't necessarily a philosophy of metaphysics uh, in the way that Hinduism sort of is, but it's really more. One of psychotherapy, uh, and that's one re- reason that I really love Buddhism is uh, the goal is to have an experience where you pass beyond the world of opposites and experience the unthinkable world where everything is undivided. Buddhism holds that the idea of the self is an illusion, and that's what I was kind of talking earlier, is that once you get to that world of opposites, your your identity as yourself doesn't exist in the same way as it used to. You. Uh, that's something that I often take comfort in, especially when I'm going through difficult times. Honestly, it's I, I think about this when I'm having very difficult times or very good times, is that, you know, I don't exist. I'm the universe. Um existing as a human, Um, and that there really isn't a me. I'm just it, um, if that makes sense. Buddhism really insists on being free from spiritual authority. That's why, you know, Buddhism doesn't really have a spiritual hierarchy like a lot of other religions have. Um, And I think that that's very important thing. I think that that's really the downfall of Western religion because the esoteric and core meanings of a religion get bastardized quite easily when there is, you know, a religious oversight that tells you what it is and what it isn't. And oftentimes they're not giving it to you the way that it really should be. Um, and of course at its core, Buddhism holds a unity and interrelation of all things. Similarly, we have Taoism, which is, like all of this, based off of the uh, mutual interrelation of the universe. Taoism really wants to break away from conventional ways, conventional ways of knowing. Uh, There's a, a mistrust of conventional wisdom in Taoism. Uh, one of the main books of Taoism is the Tao Te Ching, written by Lao Tzu, um, and I highly recommend you you read it if you really want it, you know want to get an understanding of Taoism and Eastern philosophy, kind of in general. It's a, an accessible book. It's written in uh, well, I'm not sure what the verse will be called, uh, but. They're they're pretty short. Versus, I read the Tao teaching and the Gospel of Thomas, uh, which I've discussed in my Gnosticism episode at the at a, the same time or at least around the same time, and I found them to be very similar. Um, but really, Taoism is built off of observing nature and how nature works and uh. Using your mystical intuition to figure out how you operate within nature. And it saw all change in the universe as being manifestations of yin and yang. Uh, the second verse in the Tao Te Ching says All in the world recognize the beautiful as beautiful, herein lies ugliness. All recognize good as good, herein lies evil. So, you know, that's what it's saying is that you know there's an interplay of opposites. Uh, ugly is in beautiful. Evil is in good. There, you know, there are two sides of the same coin, same token, and that's something that's been thought in many, many uh, you know mystical philosophies the world over. Chuang Tzu says, "The this is also that." The that is also this, that the that and the this cease to be opposites is the very essence of Tao. Only this essence, an axis as it were, is the center of the circle, responding to the endless changes. So, that's what that's what the essence of Tao is. Is that is this and this is that. That art thou. Um, so it's it, it's got some deep similarity. To Hinduism, uh, in general, the the the, ta- uh, the book, the Tao of Physics, says the way of the sage is when these opposites are perceived, and so that's in Eastern mysticism. That's the baseline for coming into mystical revelation: is perceiving that we live in a world of opposites and transcending it. One of the main aspects of Taoism is called Wu Wei, which is basically acting in accordance with nature. So that's the goal of Taoism is acting in a way that balances your life with the natural world. And I think that that's a great thing. And that's something that we've realized in physics and, you know, through things like uh, the modern environmental movements is that we need to act more in accordance with the way that nature works because we are nature. Uh, despite the fact that we live in cities and we drive cars, you know, we are natural beings and there is nothing outside of the circle of medita- uh of, uh, you know, the, the environment and of nature. We'll finish up our discussion of Eastern philosophy, talking about Zen. So, Zen uh, incorporates Indian philosophy, Japanese philosophy, and Chinese philosophy uh, throughout its historical developments. Those are the three cultures that have kind of blended into creating the unique philosophy that is Zen. The ultimate goal of Zen is to attain enlightenment and what is called Satori. Uh, And basically, Satori is flashes of... You know, mystical revelation that come to you in in little moments is basically what Satori is. Um, it's keeping in mind that what the, what the sound of two objects not striking together is right. Um, Zen has been described as a special transmission outside the scriptures not founded upon words and letters, pointing directly to the human mind, seeking into one's nature and attaining Buddhahood. So Zen is Buddhist, and the goal is to achieve Buddhahood by having Satori experiences and contemplating the wonder and mystery of life in every single act. So a Zen person is constantly contemplating how wonderful and mysterious it is just to exist you're supposed to live naturally and spontaneously as a zen person so i think we know people in our lives that are uh, that are very zen perhaps they mean to perhaps they don't mean to um i think generally i'm I, i'm a zen person just considering that i do this podcast and but uh, personally, I think that I could... I think I could improve on that, living naturally and spontaneously. It's... Uh, it's uh, you know, that's one of the things about, you know, being a mystic and trying to have mystic experiences is that you're constantly learning. Everything... I, I've said this before, but everything is an Ouroboros. Uh, you're constantly coming back uh, to things and also moving forward at the same time. It's... that's why... Salve et coagula, the saying of the alchemists uh, dissolve and coagulate, is one of the you know core sayings of my life, I think. Uh, the book has a good quote. It says, Before you study Zen, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. When you're studying Zen, mountains are no longer mountains and rivers are no longer rivers. And then, rivers become rivers and mountains become mountains again and uh i'm not going to go into detail about what that means uh, i'll let you figure it out for yourself but that uh is an experience that i have definitely had so putting this all together um the unity of all things is the most important thing in both phys- physics and in eastern mysticism The most important thing is to have an awareness of the unity and the mutual interrelation of all things. We're all parts of the cosmic whole. There's a basic oneness of the universe, not only in mysticism, but in the revelations of modern physics. Uh, It's been revealed that subatomic particles show that everything is interconnected. Uh, I probably could have done a better job of explaining how all of this works in physics, but it's complicated, um, and I'm not a physicist, clearly. I'm much more of, a, you know, a mystic than I am a physicist, but some of these, I want to go into just a little bit of detail for a second of, you know, how we've gotten to that point in physics. We have what's called the Copenhagen Interpretation of Quantum Theory that comes from Niels Bohr uh, and uh, Werner Heisenberg, I believe is his first name. And it showed that there is an essential interconnectedness of nature. Um, It's the main aspect that you need to take away from just knowing what they found out about studying these particles is that you can only measure particles by when they're taken in relation to each other. You can't observe what is being observed because you are what is being observed. You can't make smaller units exist on their own because there is no existing on their own. They're only able to be considered when taken in relation to everything else because they are everything else. Uh, Niels Bohr says that Isolated material particles are abstractions, their properties being definable and observable only through their interactions with other systems. And so the other systems are the physicist. Uh, you can't isolate material particles. That, that's, that's not possible. And so we have... The, 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 the physicists also use metaphors of you know this web of relations, interactions with other systems... And in Eastern mysticism, we have uh, the web of Indra, which is a metaphor that explains how the universe works, where the web of Indra is this giant web made of uh, diamonds that reflect each other. And in each diamond, you can see every other diamond reflecting in it. And so that's really, that's how the universe operates. And so we're all these diamonds that are in the web of Indra and we're reflecting every bit of reality in ourselves. In Tibetan Buddhism, uh, the scriptures, uh, the, the word they use is weave, which shows interrelation. So the highest peak of this understanding is that one's identity is consumed into this oneness. Krishna says, Be in truth eternal beyond earthly opposites. And so that's really the goal, is uh, coming into the understanding of the yin and yang and transcending these opposites until you get to the place of the ultimate union, the mystical union. Um, And that's what we've also found with these subatomic particles. They're both destructible and indestructible, continuous and discontinuous. They are both waves and particles. So, that's it for today's episode. The Tao of Physics leaves us with some earth-shattering revelations, that we are all connected, that there is a basic oneness to our existence, and that there is truly nothing outside of ourselves. In fact, our self as we know it doesn't even exist. Please be sure to follow A Mythic Existence on social media, leave a five-star review, and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Thanks for listening. See you next time.